Hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Van Maren, and you are listening to The Bridgehead. If you want to check out past shows, you can go to thebridgehead.ca. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. We've had quite a few uh, interesting interviews these last couple of weeks, and I hope you'll find that today is no exception. I talked today to a woman who has been gaining an increasingly high profile in the last few years. Her name is Obianuju Ikoka, and you'll forgive me if I, I butchered the name. I actually had to practice that quite a few times. She's the founder and president of Culture of Life Africa. She's now an internationally acclaimed uh, pro-life speaker and strategist. And one of the reasons that she's so interesting is because she's one of the few people that's defending African traditions and African values against what she calls the neo-colonialism of the West. Uh, essentially what she says is that these massive humanitarian projects in Africa are generally oriented towards attacking the fertility of African women, of reducing the African birth rate, and of introducing things like abortion and alternative sexual lifestyles to cultures that have no interest in these things and do not want these things. And she wrote a book called Target Africa, and she joined me to talk about that book, and I found this book just fascinating. One of the things I noted in this book is that these African countries are on, under massive pressure to legalize abortion from the West, from the United Nations, from all these organizations that people typically think of as doing good. What they're actually doing, is, as she points out in this book, is practicing a form of neocolonialism. And I found it interesting that the African culture is so pro-life that in many cases, what you actually have taking place is Western pressure to legalize abortion and then push back from the African people. So in Sierra Leone, there was an abortion bill that was hugely celebrated by the West. And then due to pressure from the people, the president of Sierra Leone backed down and refused to sign it. In uh, one province in Nigeria, they legalized abortion. Uh, they kind of snuck it in in a bill that was supposed to just deal with violence against women. And once people found out about it, there was a massive outcry and the bill was actually repealed. And the president, when repealing the bill, admitted that this was because African religious leaders, African cultural leaders had demanded this and that he had to follow the will of the people. The same thing is true in Kenya, where a couple of years ago, there was a there was a brawl over whether or not Kenya would explicitly include pre-born human rights, explicitly recognize the fetus as a person in its constitution. And as you can imagine, there was huge pressure from the West and especially from uh, abortion organizations like Planned Parenthood to ensure that this would not take place. Of course, once the once fetal personhood is enshrined in the Constitution, short of a massive constitutional repeal, uh, this is this is going to be there for good. And Kenya also held strong and maintained that uh, the the human being has has personhood rights even inside the womb. So there's this huge pushback going on uh, in Africa, but there's also a lot of pushing around uh, going on. And uh, Obi Nuju has done so much on this topic. This book, Target Africa, which you've really got to check out, it's just magnificent, uh, is, is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of her writings. She's been writing for all, all kinds of places, the Vatican's Pontifical Council of the Laity, Catholic Exchange, uh, <clears throat> LifeSite News, the Catholic Herald. She's spoken in, in 15 different countries. Uh, she's been on a whole bunch of different media outlets. My favorite one was an interview she did on BBC on the BBC. This was just an incredible interview where you have this uh, this sort of snotty British host that's pushing her on what African women need, 
and and her pushing back saying you don't know what africans need and it's offensive and racist for you to tell us that what we need is our fertility reduced because that's what your worldview happens to dictate. So this was just really, really kind of uh, fascinating to watch this exchange. I sent it to my wife as soon as I saw it because my wife spent four months of every year for the, the five years before we got married uh, in Africa working with a, a nonprofit in Tanzania. And when we were dating, we would email back and forth. She was in Africa for four or five months. And, and she would always say, one of the things that I love about African culture is their love for family, their love for children. These things still exist here in a way that they don't exist uh, in Canada and the United States anymore. And when I was reading through this book, Target Africa, the culture that I saw described was exactly the culture that I, I read about uh, in the e emails my wife sent to me while we were dating. And, and it was exactly the reason she fell in love with Africa when she first went as a teenager. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I was fascinated by it. I could have talked to her for hours. I hope she comes on again. And please all go out and get this book, Target Africa. It's a really important book, I think. It's been recommended by everybody out there. Uh, Robert P. George, Eric Metaxas, you name it. Everybody's recognizing this book as something that could actually be a tipping point in this debate. It could actually be something that starts to shift the debate about Africa. And so I, I really want everybody to read it. In the meantime, uh, I present to you my interview. Um, it all started with uh, the, the project that Melinda Gates uh, decided to launch in 2012. So... <clears throat> I was this African girl, uh, raised in Africa, born in Africa, raised in Africa. I was educated in Africa, went to university. Um, at least my first degree, I did it uh, in Nigeria. But I came to the UK, uh, you know, for education, my own educational pursuits and academic pursuits, as well as uh, professional pursuits. So I was working as a scientist. I was um, having a great time. I was happy, still for a life, but just not activist. And then it was during these years that I, um, you know, just one day in 2012, that I was watching the television and I I just came upon the uh, a news story of Melinda Gates' project. And I was watching this interview that she did. And she was to launch a massive extensive, expansive, and I think expensive contraception project uh, across the 69 poorest countries of the world. The problem is the 69 poorest countries of the world, when you go and check it, uh, all the African countries fall into that category. So in other words, she was targeting Africa without naming the continent, mm -hmm. right? So if she's saying 69, at, at the time I just felt, well, anyone who says, I want to do a, a massive contraception pro project with 69 poorest countries in the world, she's saying she wants to get all my people and then even more people, right? So from, from other parts of the developing world. So <clears throat> that really struck me, you know, struck a chord within me. At the time, I was already living in the United Kingdom, as I said. But I also had this very strong connection to Africa because obviously I had lived uh, most of my life, you know, most of my my childhood, well, all of my childhood and, and some of my, my adulthood in Africa. And I knew for sure that contraception was not 
and had never been a priority for people. If you ask people what they want, what they need, they would never really say we need contraception. No one ever said that sort of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. um, so I decided to to write about it. I decided to to write down the reasons why she shouldn't. So I started writing this. Eventually, it came out to be a, a really, uh, you know, substantially long article uh, that then became known as the open letter to Melinda Gates. Um, I sent it out fortu- very fortunately to someone at EWT and Teresa Tomio, and um, and she read it on air during her radio show, and that was really the first time it became public, you know, that, that my name came out publicly as someone with these views, you know, this African woman living in the West with these, you know, with these words to say about a Western donor and what she was, what the Western donor was doing uh, in Africa. So I think even not only uh, did, did I on that day become launched into into the pro-life world, if you like, but also I, I think that just by the virtue of how things had happened, the style of my work or the theme of my work was decided just by, by the way it all, it all happened. So it was all very providential, I believe, but... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that open letter to Melinda Gates went viral. It was translated into many languages. It was read by so many people around the world, but also um, people just, I, I just realized that people needed to know and people were very curious as to what the Africans believe on different issues, on very important issues, like at the time it was contraception, but also many issues, uh, you know, similar issues. There, there was abortion, there was human sexuality, there's marriage, there's motherhood, there's feminism. So there were all these things that I came to to realize that, yes, most or majority of the African people hold these views to be true, um, but it might just be a problem of articulation or even just to have the platform to be able to tell the world this is where we are and these are the things we believe. Because, by the way, Africa is not a vacuum. Uh, We do have cultural views. We do have cultural values that are very strong and the people hold dear. So I got into this space and then I started writing about it. I started speaking about it. Um, And, and, you know, it's now six years down the line and I'm still going and it just seems to be more and more work to do. So that's how my work as a pro-life activist and a pro-life speaker and a pro-life writer, that's how it all started. And from your original letter, more or less the view that that you explain to western audiences has become to has become known as ideological neocolonialism that's the sure. part of the title of, of your book that i've got in front of me here target africa yes. ideological neocolonialism in the 21st century so just to to start off this discussion about your book because there's a lot i want to get through uh, could you just explain to the listeners what ideological neocolonialism is Right. Ideological neocolonialism, of course, is a term that uh, some haven't heard, but uh, believe me, most people know exactly what it is and people have either talked about it or or have thought about it. But what it is is this. Um, I mean, in the West, especially in the Western world, uh, there is very obviously um, uh, the prominence of, of the liberal ideology, if you like, the ideology of the left. Um, I know people might object to that because this is, this is political language when you say the ideology of the left, but really it's uh, those people who are um, very um, they, they, are, they are very strong and they are very, they've become proponents of, of certain kinds of, of moral, uh, moral views. They want to redefine everything. They are, they are pushing the envelope. They are pushing culture. They are trying to, um, 
to, to align the world with a certain view or a particular view of the human person and human development and, and you know, uh, human relationships. So, unfortunately, these people who believe these things, these people who have uh, put the West, the entire Western world in this position where, you know, abortion is legal in, every, in, most of the Afri- in most of the Western countries where contraception is no longer a problem. I mean, it's women being, being given to kids. Um, the kind of sexuality education being given to children is, is so graphic. So they have all these views, uh, but they're also the very powerful ones. They, they have the media. They have, you know, they are, they are very, they're giants, in fact, if you like, and, and they control the narrative. So these these same people are also the same people who are in the position of leadership uh, when when you when when you talk about african countries being relating to western countries we are faced with western leaders who have ideological um you know certain ideological dispositions or certain ideological um uh, how do you say? So their ideology has been set. So mm-hmm. they try to push their ideologies and their views on life, their cultural, uh, the, cult- the definitions they've made on various things within culture. They try to push it on African people through uh, the easiest way, which is, I believe, is funding. I believe it's, it's within their position as as donors. So they come in uh, and, and they come to African countries and they are our donors, they are our helpers, and they call themselves partners. They call themselves all sorts of names. But within that relationship between African countries or the developing countries and the, the you know these leaders within the West who have certain ideal, ideological dispositions, um, there is a push from from the western from those western donors from those powerful western donors on africans to uh, accept these you know these new views these new values these new parts of cultural or these things that sometimes and most times i'd say the africans find uh, morally objectionable so that is what i'll call ideological mm. neocolonialism um and everyone of course knows about the the history of africa as far as colonialism is concerned is concerned we have been uh, n- nations you know the africa africa has almost every nation in africa was colonized uh, more than 100 years ago and and all of us have come out of that geopolitical colonialism, right? the era of colonialism. But unfortunately, we are going back there. That's what I wrote mm-hmm. about in my book is how we have, we have now found ourselves where we are still being, you know, we are being annexed. We are being completely overshadowed, overwhelmed. And it's all as a result of ideological, you know, maneuvering. So that, that is what I'll, I'll say is ideological colonization. And it's interesting because one of the responses uh, to the case that you're making, which that unfortunate BBC anchor woman made when, when you did an interview with her on, on this topic, is something that you, you go through in your introduction where you detail the history of colonialism first. And then one of the main responses to Westerners is, look, the African leadership seems to want this. Uh, they seem to be very open to our offers of this kind of help. So obviously we're responding to a demand that exists. But you explain in the introduction, it's something I'd never thought of before, that there's an inferiority complex left over from yeah. colonialism. And yeah. this is one of the reasons that so many countries are accepting help that is actually at odds with the beliefs of their people. Absolutely. I mean, the African, the Africans find themselves in 
uh, in a position of, I say, cultural inferiority complex, as, as you said here. So w- many Africans still don't believe that uh, their views are so good and so powerful that they, that it should be offered to the world, that they should be proud about it. So if you believe that abortion is, is so terrible, that abortion is in fact an abomination, that one shouldn't uh, kill the offspring and you shouldn't kill the next generation, uh, no matter how inconvenient you think they, they are, uh, but then you believe that. Most people in Africa believe that. Many people believe that. But then they are not proud enough about it or confident even about it um, to tell the world that this is the right place to be mm-hmm. for everyone right mm-hmm. so so whereas people in the west are proud enough to come to us and tell us you know that say for example same sex marriage is is really very good and it's what society needs or you know or all of these new things these new ideas um you know the, everything within the sexual revolution they come to us and they tell us it's all women empowerment and they're proud of it but the africans whatever it is that we believe whatever it is that we hold there as our cultural views and values um, especially on moral issues we are just not we're just not confident enough to, to offer it to the world or to say, to speak about it or to try to defend it no matter what so this is where our African leaders are uh, today that the African leaders are so terrified you know when they're when they're faced uh, with you know, when they're you know when they're with donors or when they're with uh with western people or western or oh god forbid scientists you know the mm-hmm. person has has some 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 title that is uh, that is intimidating our leaders almost prostrate before that force you know they always step down they always give in or surrender they 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 subject themselves or subordinate themselves to that Western, you know, the Western power, the Western authority or the Western leader. And I believe that that is one of the first problems uh, that that has made Africa so vulnerable uh, to the acceptance of some of these uh, new ideas and ideologies coming at us from the West. I think the statistics that struck me the most in your book um, are not the statistics that will strike most people because... One of the things that, that I often write about and one of the, 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 the sort of trends we combat as members of the pro-life movement is the perception of children. Uh, are children mm-hmm. a burden? It's, you know, if somebody, you know, is pregnant with their third child, they kind of have to really rationalize how are they going to do this. And it's, in your book, uh, you talk about the desired number of children in many African countries and yes. how the desired number of children in many Af- African countries for women is, is between six and nine. And yeah. the reason this struck me is because I, I grew up in, in quite a large family. My dad is one of 11. My mom right. is uh, one of nine. But my, right. my, my grandmother lost two of them at a very young age. And she always right. said, you don't get old from having children. You get old from losing them. Hmm. That was her perspective. And so when I read yeah. this, this section of your book, it struck me that, that the African approach to children, seeing them right. as a gift, is something the West used to have but we lost and are now yes. trying to, it seems to me, take it away from Africa as well. Yes. So the and that's why whenever, you know, I'm speaking and I sometimes say African values, right? Mm-hmm. Um Many times I try to correct myself or, you know, when I remember, I, I just try to explain that, you know, what I am referring to as African values are in fact 
not African values, they always used to be universal values right. because we all had it. We all shared it until some people, some leaders within the West. You know, when I say leaders, I don't only mean political leaders. I mean social leaders and cultural leaders and, and uh, you know, influencers in, in the West. Uh, in the, for the last 50 years, I, I'd say they've been on this project where they have been taking away gradually or removing and uprooting values from within uh, the Western society. And all those values that they've been uprooting and working on in the last 50 years um, are the universal values that we all shared. So because it's been taken out and taken away from from you know from the center or the core of western society now you know a lot of us now call it african values but in truth they're not african values we don't hold patent to those to these things the respect for motherhood uh, the love of children and the love of family the the fact that that the family means so much and the family represents so much in society um what marriage has been and how beautiful and you know how much celebration that you can even still see a bit of that some of the vestige of it within western culture when when uh, you know a man and a woman are getting married everything that goes into you know this wedding yeah. every just all the 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 beautiful celebrations around the, the the beautiful dresses and the beautiful you know tuxedos that people wear so there's a a, a, a beautiful culture that is still left, you know, in the ruins out. So you can see a bit of that. But these things used to be values that we all shared. So now we're having to call it, in some cases, African values. You know, it's just just to cut it and just for expedience, we just call it that. But really, these are values that we we all held dear and we mm-hmm. all shared. So. And- in your second chapter, you start to talk about the hypersexualization of youth, which, of course, yeah. is something that's been prevalent in the West for quite some time. Sure. I remember, actually, I think this was two years ago, an article came out uh, about some Westerners who went to Kenya, and they mm-hmm. showed uh, some Kenyans footage of Western pornography. Mm-hmm. And they didn't get the reaction they expected. The people who saw this said, that's ridiculous. This is yeah. very unrealistic. And they didn't understand the appeal, which yes. just kind of shows how f- much further along the West is uh, in their acceptance of, of all kinds of bizarre things that are now prevalent. And mm-hmm. uh, at the street center in Tanzania, where my wife worked for, for quite a number of years, mm-hmm. the introduction of smartphones, she said, is the number one thing that's that's polluting the ability yeah. for people to get a good education because they're mm-hmm. becoming hooked on porn now just like Westerners. Hmm. So how do you – you describe this in, in quite a lot of detail in, in, in your second chapter. How do you see the, the hypersexualization of youth in Africa proceeding? So the the hypersexualization of the African children, I think, um, it, at least in, this is and this is my own opinion. My take on it is that um, because the African traditions and culture um, is so deeply seated and deeply rooted in those that are already adults, right? So before all of this started, before we became a social experiment, um, people had already formed fully formed, uh, were already fully formed within their various communities, you know, Mm. across the continent of Africa. But the children who we are now having, who they're so tender, they're so impressionable, and many, many millions of them are in school rooms. You know, they are in classrooms and school rooms where 
people can have access to them away from their parents who are the ones that have already been formed you know you know they've, they've already had all their formation uh, through through culture but the children haven't so what is now going on at least how I see it happening is that because our children uh, are in schools where parents are not there to supervise or see or be scandalized by anything happening. Western organizations, trusted Western organizations, if I can put it that way, organizations like UNICEF and UNESCO, you know, these people are opening doors for Western, uh, the Western people to come in, Western organizations, Western donors, they're These doors are being opened to them to have direct access to African children, which I find really, really dangerous. And they are running several projects, not just one project, but several projects targeting little children uh, across the different African countries in their schoolrooms, in their classrooms, without asking for parental consent, without even telling African parents what their children are learning in schools. Uh, But one of the core of it, and I wrote quite extensively about that in the book, Mm -hmm. um, is this horrible project called Comprehensive Sexuality Education, which is sexuality education that has been uh, completely conceived and planned and completely written out uh, in Western countries. So, and the, these uh, these plans, these comprehensive sexuality education uh, plans, are being offered as as what should be the global standard. So, can you imagine it that that someone has come up with a certain number of things that they they think children should be taught? Uh, you know, everything from once experimenting once with one sexuality, um, you know, sexual pleasure, uh, you know, all of this is, but it's all as sex without responsibility, um, and getting them very comfortable with how, uh, you know, how sex is seen in in the in the in the Western world. Not has nothing to do with our African culture. So they are bringing this comprehensive sexuality education, and they are preferring it and offering it as. Um, as the as the standard, you know, as this should be the standard of of sexual education for children all over the world, but that's impossible because we all come from different worlds, we all belong to different cultures, but they are offering it all the way from the United Nations and through uh, secondary agencies and organizations like International Planned Parenthood Federation and many others who then bring it into African villages, African schools to children, African children, and they're offering it to them and they're trying to teach them away from their parents what sex should be like, what uh, you know, sexual orientation is, what gender identity is, all these things that we even find abominable, things that we find uh, you know, um, I- impossible within African culture, but they, uh, yet, they're yet giving it to children without them being, uh, being cut off or affected by anything that the culture has to teach us. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's a terrible project. It is a very uh, insidious in the way that they are doing it. And I believe, at least in my, you know, in my own opinion, that the reason they're coming after children is because the adults have already been, you know, cancelled out. You know, it's impossible to try to re- to change the mind of an African adult who already has learned all about the bloodlines and how important the bloodlines are, for example, or what, you know, or what marriage is or how honourable it is that people should be married before, you know, before they move in together. So all of these things, the adults have been 
sealed off, if you like, at least in most cases. And so the children are the ones who are open and, and they're, they're having access to so, so many of them and they're bringing them in through various projects, most especially uh, and including the comprehensive sexuality education. So how do we, um, as people in the West, know what's actually going on, right? So your book is very helpful, but often we'll hear about an organization. So I don't know if you've heard of an organization, for example, called the Global Health Corps. And they're going in and they're doing massive outreach. And we look at it and they're like, oh, it looks like they're trying to improve health care. That seems good. How do we determine whether or not they're pushing ideological neocolonialism or if they're actually going there seeking to better the African people and responding to their needs as articulated by Africans, not set out by Western ideologues? Yeah, so, it, I mean, there are a number of things people can actually do. This is a, a, a fantastic question, and I love it, because even I uh, try to do that from from time to time, once I run into an organization. Um, thank goodness we are in an age where most organizations, especially international organizations, have very accessible websites. You find their website, you go to their website and check out their projects and check out the kinds of things that they do. But another thing one can do is to uh, to look for who these organizations associate with. So, mm. of course, when, especially massive organizations, when they go out to Africa, they don't work alone. They always partner up with someone. You know, it's, it's, you know, you will, you will be able to tell, even just looking at their websites, you will be able to tell who is associated, who is associated with them and who is doing joint projects with them. Now, when looking out for it, uh, sometimes, organizations are not often clear if they're going to be doing abortions. Of course, they will not say. If they're going to be out there doing, um, you know, contraceptive projects. It's, it's hard sometimes to tell because they do not, they do not say it. But do look out for the right words on their websites and on their press, within their press releases. If you see things like sexual and reproductive health, mm. uh, be mindful because sexual and reproductive health and rights, any of these things coming up, you would know that they are in the business of, you know, at least con- massive contraception. You would know that they are at least in the business of comprehensive, se- moving comprehensive sexuality education and, of course, possibly um, abortion and, and, you know, things that have to do with sexual orientation. But do look out for these things uh, and the kind of language that they use and the people they associate with um, and their system of working. Um, so this, at least this is one way to, to one of few ways to start uh, go, going after these organizations. And if you find out that they are doing this, please do not support them. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, even on the contrary, raise alarm if it's possible to write articles, speak about it, go online, speak about it on Twitter, question them. Because if you do, many times the organizations are forced, they're forced to, to come up to you and to, to respond, especially if it's done in a very public way. Aid addiction. It's very central uh, to your thesis because essentially you make the case that all of this help coming in with strings attached, uh, mm-hmm. that this aid addiction essentially uh, in, some, in some cases actually pushes African leaders to make concessions that they don't even want to make, but yeah. they feel they have to in exchange for everything from, from clean water to, to, to basic resource management. So how... Describe what this concept of aid addiction is, and then maybe mm-hmm. uh, let us know because that, that, I think that part of your book was 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 uh, one of the most depressing things because you lay yes. out in your all these chapters what's going on, and then when you get to the chapter on aid addiction, it really seems like it's the kind of addiction that would be really really hard to break. Yeah, so I mean, it was very sad. That's the saddest part of the book for me to write because it's also me um, taking on some fault. 
uh, with the African people. So it's mm-hmm. easy for someone to say the reason why we are down here is because they pushed us down. It's because they're trying to colonize us. It's because all these people coming from the West and poor us, they're doing this to us. But for me to be able to write about aid addiction, I also had to reconcile with the fact that one of the major reasons why we are where we are today is because of how terrible things have become among the African leadership, among the ruling class in Africa, among, you know, the people who uh, are constantly getting and taking aid from, from Western donors. So the aid addiction is exactly what the name implies. It's an addiction. Unlike all addictions or like most addictions, it's one that before you even start healing, you have to admit that you do have an addiction. So no one can just accidentally recover from an addiction by taking more crack cocaine or by taking more alcohol, you know, or by if you're having a porn addiction, by watching more porn. You never, ever heal that way. You, The first step to healing is that you, you're going to have to say, we are addicted, and, and then what can we do and how do we get healed? So the, we've gotten ourselves into this position where African Many African countries are dependent on aid and the, the leaders, uh, they, they have come to so much, not just love the aid, but really they have come to be addicted to it. Now, the people who are giving us the, the aid, they also at this stage know that we are addicted to it because for decades now, African countries have been on aid uh, you know, all kinds of humanitarian aid. If anyone wonders, as of now, African countries get about $50 billion in aid just uh, among the, you know, shared among the 54 countries and they're getting all this aid from the Western countries, from the Western world. So we are living on this $50 billion and and it is really, it's becoming really, really hard to, to step away from it. And if you if you try to track the aid back, say even for the last 20 years or 30 years, it's never going down. So if someone says this is a way to help the poor, but that means that for 20 years or 30 years, we have been beggars. Um, and instead of it getting better, our lives getting better, the aid continues to increase. So in a way, those who are giving us this addictive thing, which in this case um, is aid, right? It's the donations. They also have a kind of a perverse relationship with us because they know we're addicted and still they continue to give it to us. And then we are continuously highly dependent on them. And then in that way, they turn around and they're telling us, um, you know, to, to adopt their own ways and they're trying to introduce us to things that we didn't know before or that we don't even agree with, things that our customs and cultures forbid us to do. They're giving us these kinds of things and these kinds of views. They're bringing in, you know, radical forms of feminism. They're bringing to us legal abortion. They are, of course, trying to force us really, really hard to embrace the whole LGBT propaganda. Um, and, and so many other things are trying to get our children, you know, hypersexualized. So all these things they, they are doing to us, it's simply because they have us in a position that uh, where we are addicted. And so uh, the first step, I believe, is just for the African people. And this is for us to do. Is for us to, is for the African people who are the ones in the position in the first place to wake up and know that we are addicted and so if we are addicted we just have to go cold turkey you know and 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 find a way out of the addiction but no one ever heals from an addiction by taking more of the substance no one now 
the most important question, of course, deals with one of your last chapters, which is called Towards the Decolonization of Africa. So you're, reading your book really gives you mixed feelings, because on one hand, yes. I, I'm thrilled that it exists and that you know, somebody is, is, is well, you're defending your culture and you're defending it against the Western ideologues who have yes. been trading this stuff across the world. And then, of course, as we just mentioned, there's some just profoundly disturbing and depressing things in mm. the book, especially when you realize that uh, so much of the stuff that you've read about that you thought were feel-good stories is actually yeah. ideological neocolonialism. So it, it also smashes some preconceptions that, uh, that you know, it's, it's, it's kind of painful to read from that perspective. So, like, in a twofold question. One, how does the decolonization uh, of Africa begin in your mind? And then second of all, how have, 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 have people in Africa responded to your work? Because I don't think there's anybody else, correct me if I'm wrong, who has been so vocal, so loud, and has had access to platforms like the BBC to, to make this case in, in a very public way. Right. So to answer the first question, how do we uh, come out of it? Again, um, I think the, the, the last answer I gave sort of begins to answer it. So the decolonization of Africa, the ideological decolonization of Africa, um, starts by an economic decolonization. So we have to first and foremost walk away from the aid. We have mm -hmm. to, we have to be able to stand on our own as independent countries. You know, when I, the whole time I was growing up and the book actually does start from there. Um, I talked about myself as a child of an independent country. So, African countries are very proud of their independence. For Nigeria, it's October 1st. And I grew up just knowing that our day of independence has been something to be proud of, even before I understood about colonialism and the reason why my parents and my teachers all taught me that the independence of Nigeria is really such an important day, right? So um, I, uh, the independence of African countries uh, is what we have been taught all our lives, and we celebrated that at that time of the year. We take our, uh, you know, our holidays on that day, and and we come together as a nation. We enjoy our national anthem. We we celebrate ourselves as 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 independent countries. But just writing the book, doing the research for the book, and even before I heard the book, in fact, I knew it that even though we are being called an uh, you know independent countries, and we are celebrating our independence in reality we are actually not in you know we are not independent we are rather dependent on the opulence of of the western countries so that that really you know it's it's saddens one and that that all these african countries are taking aid and that many of them even very very dependent on aid for their budgets to balance they must get money from the west they must get money from the donors so we are not independent so in order for our decolonization to begin we have to go back to the that root word independence and really become the independent countries that we claim that we are and for that to happen you cannot be dependent on aid you cannot be addicted to aid you cannot be dependent on aid um, so that's the first part and then we also have to recognize as African people that our traditions at least as far as the values of, of the, you know our moral beliefs is concerned we have treasures within our cultures, treasures that are so good and so precious 
that the world needs to know about them, that we need to be proud of them. We can no longer be the ones who uh, are completely crippled and silenced by any kind of inferiority complex. We have come away. We've come a long way. And Africans have made a lot of, you know, um, a lot, uh, we've, we've made a lot of success and we've, we've, we've really covered ground. But we do have to stand uh, within our own space to full stature and be able to say that we are proud that abortion is not legal in African countries. It's actually something to be proud of. That you don't have uh, your children being sexualized and you are not throwing condoms into the pockets and wallets of your of your you know 15 year old sons we should be proud of that as as nations and cultures that we are not going out and you know uh, women being this these crazy feminists and 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 you know living these individualistic lives that would bring men down and you know your promoting all the fatherlessness or causing fatherlessness mm-hmm. or or making an environment for fatherlessness to flourish in your in your in your communities and your countries we should be proud of those things those are actually good things but at the moment africans are not coming out to stand within the treasure the the treasure which is the cultural heritage that we have we shouldn't be like this inherited people we should be proud of our customs that are that especially the ones that preserve life and family uh, and and foster respect within within uh, communities so we should be proud of those things that is also another way of decolonization uh, and and then we should be able to stand up to the to the western donors and to the western people especially in you know on platforms like the united nations that when you when nations gather together no cameroon should not be bowing before france and that france is france and was your colonial master at some point in history doesn't mean that France actually has moral authority over you. And they shouldn't be telling you how you should make abortions, you know, say, quote unquote, safe and, and, and accessible to women. You should stand up to them as Africans we, because we are sovereign and we're supposed to be independent. All these things that we've been told that we, ha- we are, that we've been told we're free and we, are, we, we can self-govern, we can self-direct. Let's really, really do that. So the second part of your question um, as to how my work has been uh, has been received in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say so far so good. I mean, the, the majority of the people, when you go through the book, you would see that a lot of the statistics I'm quoting, it's so overwhelming. So within a country, I know, yes, perhaps there are some people who m- might have accepted the lies um, that, that have come through, you know, through ideological colonialism, those who have who have prostrated to it, those who have accepted or surrendered to these beliefs. Uh, but just the majority, the overwhelming majority of the people uh, still hold these cultural views and values very dear, um, especially on, on the moral issues. So I have had really good reception if when I've gone to countries, when we've done conferences, when when I've spoken in various um, domains and forums, people have been very good. People have come up to me to to say that I have just spoken their mind, you know. So um, we I spoke at the United Nations on the 19th of March, so it's not very long ago, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and we, we, you know, I spoke on neocolonialism. I spoke on how the West is bringing these things to us that we didn't want before or we didn't ask for. And um, uh, after speaking, I was very, very surprised. Many of the Africans who attended the event, so there were lots of African women 
attend at the forum and they attended the event they listened to me many walked up to me to say thank you so much this is exactly how we feel in our own place or in my own country so there is quite a consensus uh, among the majority of the people so i've had really really good reception the problem that i've experienced anyway is that uh, there isn't a way, whereas in the West, yes, there is, it's very easy to spread the word. You go on Twitter, you put something and, you know, within a day, every, so many people have seen it. Um, I still haven't got a way of disseminating the message to every corner. So there's Mm. still, there's still lots of people who haven't heard the message. There's still a lot of people that I haven't been able to have access to. But as far as, you know, I've had access to some people and to the thousands and thousands of people I've met in different countries, it's always been good. Uh, but again, it's very slow if it's just me speaking at a conference. It's only those people at the conference that have heard it. Um, but I'm hoping and still praying for a way to have platforms forms that we can put this message on televisions, on radios, and you know, we can do billboards that are pro-life in different African countries. But for that, you know, we're still hoping I'm still hoping I'm building up that strategy and hoping for more more support in the work so that I'm able to take this message as far and as, as far and wide across the continent as possible. So so that's 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 where we are at the moment. Um and if there is any opposition whatsoever, it's come from people in the West, so it doesn't really bother me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you for writing this book. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful, Jonathan, for uh, for being on your show, for being invited, and that you read the book so well <laughs> as, as well. And I'm hoping that uh, that many, many more people would read the book and and you know glean the truth from it and and learn more about the African people, especially as we are at this time where an age where people from one side, one political side or ideology, would say that. Um, you know, that, that pro-life people or conservative people are not, you know, they don't like black people, they're not, you know, you know, they're racist, yeah. all of these things. So this is the time, I think, that especially a lot of people on our side of, of the, you know, of, of, of thinking will read the book and understand that it's not true what, what, what the other people are saying, that it's actually quite racist when, when you are, when you are making things worse for the Africans, when you are ideologically colonizing them. So we have a lot of work to do, you know, pro-life people, conservatives. We do have a lot of work to do, but read the book, be equipped and be able to carry on these conversations uh, and be able to put the truth out there. Ladies and gentlemen, that was an interview with Obia Nuju Ikoka. I hope you enjoyed hearing her, and you can find this interview at thebridgehead.ca. You can find it on YouTube, iTunes. You can go ahead and check that out. This interview was brought to you by Total Rentals, and I hope you'll join us again next week because we'll have another uh, very powerful interview uh, for you again then. I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for listening.